KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Triumphs and Disasters of the 60s. There's a new book about the movements of that decade, about some of the heroes and some of the problems. The authors are the brother and sister team, David Talbot and Margaret Talbot. David is the founder of Salon.com. Margaret writes for The New Yorker. Their book is called By the Light of Burning Dreams. Also, our TV critic, Ella Taylor, will talk about a new documentary about Anthony Bourdain, whose massively popular TV shows about food around the world came to focus more on politics than on cooking. Bourdain committed suicide in 2018. This film is made by Morgan Neville, whose previous work includes 20 Feet from Stardom, that great film about backup singers, and Won't You Be My Neighbor about Mr. Rogers. But first, our Washington political update. And for that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect, contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, Joe Biden gave a fiery speech Tuesday about voting rights, but he did not mention what it will take to pass the Democrats' voting rights protections, ending the filibuster in the Senate. Uh, instead, he talked about the importance of the 2022 midterms. Does that mean he's giving up on voting rights legislation? Uh, I don't think so. But the I, I think what the Biden people are trying to do is trying to game out what, if anything, will persuade uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and the other Democrats, if there are such, who are not in favor of getting rid of the filibuster, if they can raise enough of a issue about, you know, the, the special status of voting rights, and as it were, the special status of maintaining a democracy, uh, that Mansion Cinema and company will finally switch. We, you know, I'm not sure that they're any more uh, any better really at gaming this out than most of us. But I think that they're going to uh, try to keep hammering away at the issue and not actually get to the filibuster until perhaps a little later in the game. But they don't have a lot of time. One reason they don't have a lot of time is that the census is going to be released, the census data for redistricting uh, in September or October. And there's a key provision of what the Democrats are proposing, which does not yet have 50 votes, uh, is a, a provision that would essentially uh, short circuit gerrymandering uh, by uh, requiring states to appoint nonpartisan commissions to do the redistricting. So they don't have a heck of a lot of time. My, my guess is that the Biden people wanna get their economic program through first, then turn to this. Those are really, honestly, just about the only two things on their agenda. And uh, there is news about the economic agenda. Uh, uh, Biden and Schumer announced a deal on a $3.5 trillion budget to be passed by reconciliation. This is the bill that's in addition to the smaller $600 billion bipartisan infrastructure bill. And the news on Tuesday was that Bernie was going to support this, 
even though he had talked about as much as five or six trillion. Uh, what do we know uh, is in this bill? I've had a little trouble finding out. Well, what the Democrats agreed upon was the 3.5 trillion, not the specific contents of the bill. The things that we can be fairly confident that will be in the bill will be a extension, not making permanent, but an extension of the child tax credit, uh, extending preschool, universal pre-K uh, pre uh, to three years old, three-year-olds and four-year-olds, uh, major money for childcare, paid sick leave, making the first two years of college at community colleges and other public institutions free, tuition free, uh, uh, some price controls on prescription drugs, uh, a greater emphasis certainly than was in the bipartisan infrastructure proposal on climate change uh, issues. Uh, and, uh, and this is something that Bernie, I think, basically got going by himself, but it's such a political no-brainer uh, popular issue that I think this is definitely going to be in it an extension of Medicare so that it covers uh, dental care and hearing and vision care, which it currently does not, uh, and quite probably lowering the age, for, age of eligibility from Medicare to 60. Uh, you can see all kinds of things in this that are popular to many Americans, uh, probably a majority of Americans, Seniors historically have been oddly nervous about lowering the age for Medicare since many fear that will sort of dilute the benefits, but they are, to use a needlessly pejorative term for which I apologize, bought off by the really significant addition of the vision care and the hearing care and the dental care uh, to the proposals. Uh, and the, they made very clear that they will honor Biden's pledge not to raise taxes on, on uh, any household making less than $400,000 annually. So, so, so they have in the meantime also pledged that it will be fully paid for. That means they're gonna have to tax who? Well, the tax people who make more than $400,000 a year and raise the corporate tax rate from its current nominal 21%, even though most of the data suggests that corporations actually pay about 15%, uh, raise it, uh, uh, you know, to Biden suggested 28%. Uh, you know, there, there's some other ways to raise this money. Uh, certainly if they put uh, price restrictions on prescription drugs by allowing Medicare to negotiate uh, for this, that uh, will bring in, uh, you know, will we'll, we'll save uh, uh, Medicare a great deal more money. Uh, there, I mean, there are other proposals too uh, in, in both the bipartisan bill and this bill, uh, there's increasing uh, appropriation to the IRS, uh, which has long said, along with most scholars, that the rich get away with all kinds of uh, chicanery. Uh, so bringing in more revenue through that and, you know, Working in tandem with all this, there is what Janet Yellen has achieved on the international scale, which is establishing an international minimum tax of 15%, uh, 
uh, which would also bring in uh, more revenue. So there are all kinds of ways to do this, none of which raise taxes on small businesses, on family farms, or on people who aren't very well off. We mentioned that uh, Bernie has indicated he is supporting this bill. Uh, Bernie uh, was in the New York Times on Sunday, uh, featured in the column, the op-ed column by Maureen Dowd, who sat down for lunch with him at Henry's Diner in Burlington. I was very apprehensive about this because Maureen Dowd is one of the snarkiest writers about politics and no friend to progressives, but she seems to have suddenly become a big fan of Bernie. Was that your impression? Uh, yes. And in, in this, I think she is, as it were, following the lead of the American public. <laughs> uh, Bernie has always presented his agenda, his uh, democratic socialism, uh, in a way, in, in, a, in a really kind of brilliant, encapsulated way uh, that basically is a doctrine that uh, funnels benefits that should be, uh, you know, widely, the, the, the public would definitely be enthused about to the public. And he has put so many what once were considered marginal ideas uh, into the mainstream of American politics. Uh, I, I actually think Bernie is, when he thinks about it, I think he thinks he's becoming more successful than he probably envisioned. This stuff isn't enacted yet, but if they enact the bulk of what's in that $3.5 trillion uh, scenario, it's a scenario at this point, uh, you know, he will have basically helped push more than anyone else, helped push America in a, a more social democratic direction really uh, on a, almost on a scale uh, tantamount to that uh, which the New Deal did in 1935. Uh, it's, it, if, if that goes through, even if a big chunk of it goes through, that is a huge historic achievement. Uh, and that it's an achievement of somebody who was for a very long time considered just a marginal gadfly is, is really impressive. And you know, really suggests that uh, this is a democratic socialist who has real smarts about American politics. And in this conversation with Maureen Dowd at Henry's Diner in Burlington, he not only talked about what is going into the reconciliation bill that we hope will get 50 votes of the Democrats, he, he said, uh, quote, we've got to take it to them, the white working class Trump voters. I intend as soon as I have three minutes to start going into Trump world and start talking to people. It's absolutely imperative if democracy is to survive that we do everything we can to say, yes, we hear your pain and we are going to respond to your needs, close quote. Bernie, um, looking not just at the Democrats, but at the people the Democrats have lost in the last decade or two. Well, where the Democrats are headed uh, with Bernie's prodding and, and now with this uh, second uh, investment bill that the administration is putting forward is really meeting the needs of the American working class, the white sector of which has drifted well to the right. Uh, and this is really the first 
uh, th th these proposals are really the first proposals in a very long time that deal with their economic, uh, their economic needs. And there's more. Uh, Biden seems to be on the same page as Bernie in this uh, area. Uh, on Friday, he signed a sweeping executive order, uh, which is really historic in some ways. Uh, tell us what's in that. Well, a lot of it is anti-monopoly stuff, is, is strengthening what the Federal Trade Commission can do and the Securities and Exchange Commission can do. But there is some real bread and butter stuff uh, for working class Americans in there. There is banning non-compete agreements, which according to research from the Economic Policy Institute, affects somewhere between the high 20s to the mid 40 percent of all American workers. You know, your company can stop you if you're working at burger joint A from going to a slightly better paying job at burger joint B. It's just crazy. So that's in there. And then there is uh, a provision called right to repair. And if that doesn't, uh, you know, <laughs> really relate to uh, working class concerns across all races, I don't know what does. Uh, right now, if you buy a, a, a tractor uh, from uh, John Deere or Caterpillar and something goes fluey with it, you can't repair it. Uh, there's proprietary software. Uh, that means you or a mechanic buddy of yours or uh, the, the, the mechanic, uh, you know, uh, in the next town can't repair it. You got to get it back to uh, John Deere and Caterpillar and only they can do it. So, I mean, this, this addresses an economic need, but it also addresses, you know, uh, this, this sense of being, uh, you know, that your manual labor uh, is, uh, is insufficient and we don't, you know, we don't regard it. And this sort of restores that. I mean, this, this does really address, you know, some needs of, uh, you know, a, a wide swath of Americans and it applies to cars you know, with which God knows, uh, tens of millions of American men used to love to tinker and may still, for all I know. Uh, this applies to cars too. I mean, this, this, there's really stuff here, uh, you know, and you can sort of look forward and envision, assuming the Democrats get a lot of this stuff through in the 2022 campaign, the Democrats are going to be saying, look, this is real stuff. We voted for it. You're, this Republican schlub I'm running against uh, voted against it, assuming he's an incumbent. Uh, and the Republicans will be doing all the culture war stuff. It'll be a, a really interesting, I mean, you know, I don't want to trivialize it, but it'll, it'll also be kind of a fascinating contest between two very different appeals. One, we give you real stuff and these guys didn't. The other, uh, you know, you're you're endangered as as white folks, and this this other party is 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 somehow making you more endangered. So that's going to be a really kind of interesting campaign. And and let me emphasize, the stuff in this stuff that we're talking about here is not does not require that Congress pass legislation. This is all executive orders to executive agencies, the Federal Trade Commission, the Agriculture Department, the Energy Department. Um, he directed federal health officials to enable the importation of cheap drugs from Canada. This is a direct challenge to big pharma, much bigger than Congress has been ever willing to, to take on. And, and um, it's the drum that Bernie Sanders was banging before anyone else. And um, just want to talk about the historic nature of this. It's 
really, if we look at where the Democrats abandoned this course, we can pinpoint it pretty clearly, 1992. And who got elected in 1992? Well, that began the era of uh, big, uh, big business, Wall Street domination of the Democrats under, under Bill Clinton. Uh, it didn't really go away under Barack Obama, and some of it was uh, already apparent in the presidency of Jimmy Carter. Uh, so, you know, uh, no Democratic president since Lyndon Johnson has actually pushed a progressive domestic economic program. Uh, and so we, uh, you know, and now with Biden, that's exactly what we have. There's one big but. Uh, in in the executive orders that Biden uh, issued, no order offers an immediate call to to break up Facebook or Amazon. This is not an antitrust uh, proposal against the new monopolies that dominate our lives. And I wonder why you think he left that out. I am not sure. Uh, there are clearly uh, a lot of Democrats on Capitol Hill, David Cicilline in the House, Elizabeth Warren in the Senate, but many more than that, who, who would, you know, like to see that and are pushing in that direction. One of, you know, Biden's made a lot of really great economic appointments. And I should add that just this week, uh, the great California Labor Commissioner, Julie Su, was uh, confirmed as the Deputy Secretary of Labor. Uh, but he is yet to appoint uh, the head of the antitrust division of the Department of Justice. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know, you know, which is the horse and which is the cart, but we don't <laughs> quite have yet the antitrust offensive or the antitrust attorney who would carry that ball. Uh, I think we just have to wait and see. And there's one more big story that I want to talk about with you. Plutocrats in space. Uh, it's Bezos versus Muck. <clears throat> it's Bezos versus Musk versus Branson in the race to Mars. Who are you rooting for? Uh, well, I don't want to say that I'm rooting for all of these uh, uh, space vehicles to explode, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not uh, enthused by this. And as I noted in a brief note in the prospect, uh, you know, I had never really thought of the original core of astronauts as, as exhibiting any great testament to egalitarianism. That thought didn't cross my mind. They were all white guys. Uh, but, you know, they, they were there sort of as a national symbol of American uh, creativity and industry at a time, 1960, when the economy was basically centered around that, around the, the kind of productivity Americans turned out and unionized workers in aerospace factories working on this and engineers and scientists and pilots mixing, uh, you know, even for the pilots, it was a mix of talents we might call white collar and blue collar. You know, it was kind of in that sense, in that rather narrow sense, a kind of economic egalitarianism. And now, uh, you know, space is the property of billionaires uh, and that and, and the progression, you know, from John Glenn and Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom and Neil Armstrong to uh, the trio of uh, Bezos and Musk and Branson is, is kind of symbolic of the, what's happened to the country going from a nation that rewarded uh, blue collar and white collar industry and creativity to one that only rewards wealth. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I find the whole damn thing pretty revolting. 
Turns out, I looked into this a little more, that these three guys have very different uh, motivations and sort of ideologies about this. Jeff Bezos thinks that Earth is a wonderful place that we're going to destroy with industry, and so we've got to move industry to someplace like the moon and establish a kind of industrial uh, colonies uh, up there, and then the Earth will return to being a good place to live. Elon Musk has the opposite view. He thinks we're totally screwed by climate change. Uh, the only way to preserve human life is to move to another planet, and he wants to be the first. That would be Mars, I guess. And then Richard Branson, he's just kind of in it for a good time and for for the excitement of, of, of thrills. But uh, there's one other element here, um, and that is they all are hoping to make money by spending some of their billions on this. It's it's a war to see who can get the most attention for their rocket company, which will then lead to bigger contracts from private companies and from NASA. So even as they are, want to leave Earth, they want to make money while they're doing it. Well, they've, Earth has kind of become a place for making money without doing much else, uh, you know. And and you know I, the paucity of imagination of and social imagination uh, for Bezos and Musk to think, well, we screwed up Earth. Let's not really try to fix it. Let's just go go someplace else. Uh, I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing that a, a, a good eight-year-old boy. <laughs> could come up with. And, uh, you know, we have uh, grossly overpaid eight-year-old boys in space. The world's richest men compete over who has the biggest rocket. Harold right. Meyerson wrote about them. Read them at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. There's a new book about movements of the 60s and their fights for equality for people of color, women, and working people. The authors are a brother and sister team, David and Margaret Talbot. Their book is called By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Second American Revolution. David Talbot is the founder of the pioneering online magazine Salon. He's written many books, including the bestseller The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and The Rise of America's Secret Government. He's also been a senior editor of Mother Jones and a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. We reached him today in San Francisco. Hi, David. Hey, John. And Margaret Talbot has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2004, where she's written about lots of things. The current issue features her fascinating report on the campaign inside the Catholic Church to permit women to become priests. Before The New Yorker, Margaret was an editor at the late lamented Lingua Franca, where she edited me. She's won many awards for her writing. She's the author of the book, The Entertainer, Movies, Magic, and My Father's 20th Century. We reach Margaret today at home in Washington, DC. Hi, Margaret. Hi, John. Well, you guys focus on leaders of different 60s movements, some well-known like Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda and John and Yoko and 
Bobby Seale, who of course was portrayed recently in the award-winning Aaron Sorkin movie on the trial of the Chicago 7. I'd like to focus here on some of the less well-known. You have a fascinating chapter on the Jane Collective, founded in Chicago by Heather Booth, who remains one of today's most important progressive leaders. You say the work of the Jane Collective was one of the most remarkable feats of grassroots activism and sheer chutzpah in the history of American feminism. Please explain the Jane Collective. Yeah, well, the Jane Collective was uh, just a really daring, audacious um, effort all around. I mean, it was these women who, in the era before abortion was legal, before Roe v. Wade, starting in the mid-60s, began providing abortions, first as a kind of underground referral service to to, to doctors who would uh, do these abortions, um, you know, secretly. And uh, later, actually training themselves, the women training themselves to perform the abortions. And um, these are not, for the most part, women who had medical backgrounds at that time, but they worked with these, these uh, male uh, providers who they learned from. They ended up providing uh, 10, about 10,000 abortions. They had an incredible safety record, and they did a lot of feminist consciousness raising with the women who they, who they saw. It had a very kind of mutual aid aspect to it. Some of the women who went through it also came back and had abortions themselves. And it was part of the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, which was an amazing, vibrant and vital organization that had a lot of um, a lot going on, had a rock and roll band and a graphics collective <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. But um, but yeah, they really they, they were really an example of sort of stepping up and kind of doing for themselves, but also doing it with a with a uh, with a feminist ideology. And just to go back, um, it was it was founded, you mentioned Heather Booth, it was actually founded by Heather Booth, um, kind of out of her dorm room at the University of Chicago when a friend's sister needed an abortion and she um, uh, had come back from the uh, Freedom Summer in 1964, was uh, a little bit familiar with um, breaking the law uh, in a righteous <laughs> cause and was willing to do this and she got it going. Your chapter opens with the story of the bust, Chicago police detectives knocking on the door and eventually arresting seven of the people called the Janes. Tell us a little about the bust, the trial, the aftermath. You know, the Chicago police had seemingly kind of looked the other way a little bit on their operations because some actually... Uh, wives and daughters of, of of cops actually did come to them for their services at times. And so there was a little bit of looking the other way. But eventually, they did run afoul of the law, they were arrested, um, they got a very uh, uh, tough Chicago female criminal defense lawyer to represent them. And um, she dragged the case out long enough that it actually did not uh, come to trial before Roe v. Wade. And so when Roe v. Wade in 1973, January 1973, um, became the law of the land, they actually, uh, the case, the, the charges were dropped. And I loved your chapter on the American Indian movement at Wounded Knee, which focuses on Dennis Banks, Madonna Thunderhawk, and Russell Means. Let's talk about what happened on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1973. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out also to Leonard Crowdog, who died recently, uh, the spiritual leader of the Wounded Knee Occupation. This was an amazing, John, resistance to federal sovereignty, to federal law. It was an uprising of the American Indian Movement in 1973 against the Nixon administration, but protesting the long, long history of broken treaties and deception and betrayal. 
and also the corruption of that particular uh, reservation leadership under a man named Dick Wilson, who'd been elected under very sketchy circumstances and ran a really brutal administration with a squad of kind of paramilitary thugs who proudly called themselves goons and went around shooting up the homes and roughing up people who opposed his administration. So AIM responded to the tribes people, uh, Lakota tribes people of that reservation. They were kind of shamed into taking action, the male leaders of AIM, Dennis Banks and Russell Means, by the women who said, look, if you don't take a stand here, we will. And so they occupied the sacred site where almost 100 years before there had been a massacre of over 200, closer to 300 Lakota tribes people by the regiment that had once been under the command of uh, General Custer. They were drunkenly and wantonly massacred by this regiment, who later got medals for their own heroism, kind of still a stain on American history. And so they occupied the sacred site. They said they could at night still hear the the moans and the cries Mm -hmm. of the dead. Mm -hmm. And so they were inspired to take a stand for 71 days. They withheld the full might of the uh, federal forces, vigilantes, over a half million rounds of ammunition fired at them. These are men, women, and children occupying the site. Uh, Amazingly, only two Native Americans were killed during this onslaught. But Crow Dog, Chief Crow Dog just said, uh, I was reading his obituary in the New York Times, and he said this was the greatest deed undertaken by the Native people in the 20th century, because it showed the the amazing solidarity, I think, of the tribes people. And frankly, one of the things Margaret and I uh, go into a a lot in this book is the kind of uh, bonds that were developed between movement groups. So before we started Zooming here, I know, John, you and I were talking about Bill Zimmerman, amazing guy, a white guy, uh, grew up in Chicago, working class Jewish family. But he was kind of like the zealot of the left. He was everywhere. And among his many achievements was flying a small squadron of planes and risking his own life over Wounded Knee when the people that were starving, they'd been so cut off from the outside world by the military, uh, militarized police forces that they desperately needed food. And he led a small squadron of planes over Wounded Knee and dropped food to uh, the people below, risking, you know, uh, uh, death. And at one point, uh, one of the uh, the bags of food shears off part of his plane, uh, his tail, <laughs> and he barely was able to land it plane safely. Uh, anyway, these were the kind of, I think, uh, heroic acts that we found so inspiring in the book. As Margaret uh, said, Heather Booth and, and the risks that she and others took in Chicago were similar. We need to be inspired by this and also learn from the mistakes that were made. And, and, and they, of course, made many mistakes as well, these people. Yeah, one of the keys to your approach is not just the stories of heroism and the high points, but as you say, to talk about the mistakes, the problems, and frankly, the disasters around some 60s movement leaders. I appreciate especially uh, your chapter on the Panthers and what happened to Huey Newton. Of course, a lot of us who were around at the time took part in a lot of free Huey rallies. Huey did not end up one of our heroes. Let's talk about what happened to Huey Newton and and what was the white witch? (laughs) Huey descended, uh, sadly, into criminality and gangsterism. 
<clears throat> there's no putting uh, a spin, a better spin on it than that. He was one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, very charismatic guy. I tell the story as told to me by Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the party, when they first confront a cop on the streets of Oakland, where routinely racist cops, violent cops would shake down, harass, beat and arrest uh, black citizens for no other reason than uh, they could do it. And, uh, you know, that kind of uh, violence finally was resisted by the Black Panther Party. Uh, Bobby told the story to me, and I retell it in our book in a very dramatic way, where they first legally confront this cop. Uh, No one was killed, no gunfire, but they confront him with guns. And that was the amazing heroism, I think, and the daring courage of the Black Panther Party to do that. Now, Bobby wanted to pivot after that. He thought that would capture the imagination, the attention of the black community in Oakland and nationally, and it did. And then he wanted to pivot to electoral politics and become basically a Democratic Party machine in Oakland. He himself ran for mayor in 1973 of Oakland. But Huey took a different path, sadly. Partly it was Huey's personality. He was always a hothead. Bobby talks about that with me. But he also, I think, life in prison and isolation really did a number on him. And I don't think to this day we understand enough about how these long, hard stretches of prison did psychologically affect many leaders of the movement. And Huey Newton was one of them. You know, Peter Coyote, who was a friend of Huey Newton, told me that he was a very different man, Huey, when he came out of prison. He did get into the White Witch cocaine. He got into drinking, uh, heavily drinking cognac. He began to brutalize other people, including Bobby Seale at one point. Uh, he ran a gang, basically, a, a drug gang in Oakland before he himself was shot on the streets of West Oakland by a younger drug dealer. A very sad kind of a decomposition of a guy who'd once been very heroic and charismatic. And another one of the problematic figures who you face, quite frankly, in your book is Cesar Chavez. What was the martyr complex? That chapter was written by our, uh, my husband and our collaborator, Arthur Allen, who's not with us. I mean, he's with us in the world, but he's not with us on the phone call today. But um, anyway, we, we really wanted to focus on these turning points where, where uh, various leaders of the movements um, decided to do something pretty bold and pretty imaginative strategically and, and personally and so on. And, you know, of course, Chavez led these incredible hunger strikes. I mean, where he went on hunger strikes himself, where he really brought himself near near death. And they were they were quite successful at drawing attention to the plight of the farm workers and to the boycott, which was in turn quite successful at bringing people uh, across the country into the farm workers struggle and into support of the farm workers struggle. But I think partly because of um, those sacrifices he made, and the kind of sacrifice he made of his own person of his own body, uh, that contributed to I think a feeling of, of martyrdom and isolation and um, kind of extraordinary um, separation at times from some of the people that he had come up with uh, and worked with and alienation um, from some of the from some of his um, fellow activists. So uh, I think in the end, he also um, 
made some unfortunate decisions, surrounded himself by um, people affiliated with, you know, some cult groups, you know, to do kind of uh, camaraderie building exercises that were that were kind of punitive and strange. And all of these people, and we talk about this in the book too, all of them underwent quite a bit of, you know, surveillance, harassment, persecution by, you know, the FBI, by, by COINTELPRO, Hoover's program. And so that contributed also, of course, to many of them legitimate feelings of paranoia or, or, of, or of fear or caution, um, but also those, the kind of feelings that can get out of hand and, and, and isolate people. Well, I do want to um, uh, talk a little bit about the personal side of, of all of this. David, I know you were uh, like a high school activist in the 60s. So this is a book in which you are writing about your own life. How did you deal with that? Well, in some ways, I, I was coming full circle. It's true, John. I wanted to make sense of this history, frankly, for my own uh, sake and the, those who are part of my generation, but even more so for the younger people. Uh, I have children, two sons in their 20s. Uh, Margaret has two children. Uh, and they're obviously uh, caught up in their own times and the turbulence of today. And we think it's important for these people, for the younger generation, to learn from our mistakes and also to be inspired by the achievements of the 60s and not get so grim and, and, and down that they see you, you can't make history because you, we did make history. I was a foot soldier in those movements. I knew I went to, like you, free Huey rallies. Uh, I went inside prisons inside Soledad as a Santa Cruz student uh, to teach prisoners and to raise their consciousness. And they raised ours, of course. Uh, I was involved in anti-war activities, got beat up, got arrested. And these to me were essential sort of paths that, that my generation, the best of our generation took. There was a great deal of heroism, of sacrifice uh, in my generation. I'm proud of that. And mistakes, yes, were made. Uh, and so this book, in some ways, was the culmination of everything that I've uh, been part of politically and written about politically over the last 40 years. And Margaret, you were just a little kid in the 60s. It was your older uh, brothers and, and, and sister, I guess, who were part of things. How did that affect your writing of this book? Yeah, well, I was born in 1961. So yeah, I'm 10 years younger than David. And um, I kind of grew up just, you know, going to visit them in their Santa Cruz, uh, you know, left wing socialist feminist lesbian collective and going to dances and, and demonstrations and um, as, as a kid, you know, and and um, I, I loved it, and um, I was treated with so much warmth and and uh, and and love by all those lefty hippies, and um, kind of raised by the by the village of them. In addition to our our own family, and I have always felt that I so benefited from coming of age. Age then, you know, after second wave feminism. And, you know, now, um, as the mother of a gay daughter, I feel um, so grateful for all of the social and cultural changes that the gay rights movement, uh, LGBTQ uh, movement has made. So, um, but I did also feel as a kid, just a lot of longing to a lot of regret that I wasn't older and couldn't actually be, you know, out there in the thick of it. So this gave me a great chance to kind of re-experience it, uh, you know, vicariously as a, as a, popular historian and it was and 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 somebody who had yeah lived in that um penumbra of it so. hey, John, i should add one quick thing uh 
I originally was doing this book on my own and I uh, suffered a stroke in uh, the fall of 2017. And I knew I needed someone to help me uh, write it to complete uh, the book. And I couldn't think of a better person than my kid sister, Margaret, <laughs> to do this. And so I, uh, I asked her uh, if she would step in and Art, her, Arthur Allen, her husband, to help me out. And we became a team, a family team. And in some ways, it was like the collective enterprise <laughs> of our past. And I it, had a great time working with Margaret and with Art. It was just as smooth and, and wonderful a collaboration as you could have asked for. So uh, I want to give Margaret a shout out. She didn't need to do it, but she did. She jumped in and she did a terrific job. Your feelings mutual, bra. It was great. <laughs> I know it was really a, it was a really joyful experience. And uh, I, I was I was thrilled we got to do it. Well, David, it's great to see you uh, healthy today. The book is By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Triumphs and Tragedies of the Second American Revolution. David Talbot and Margaret Talbot, thank you for talking with us today. Thank, thank you. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times op-ed page, and lots of other places. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Well, first up today, a documentary about the smirk heard round the world. What's that about? Um, it's called The Boys in Red Hats, and it is going to be playing um, on Friday at Lemley Virtual Cinema. And after that, there will be um, a set of in-person screenings, August the 2nd to the 5th, um, at the usual Lemley flagship uh, cinemas, which is Santa Monica, Pasadena, and North Hollywood, with uh, in um, the director Jonathan Schroeder in person. Jonathan Schroeder um, generally takes photographs of animals and vets, but this <laughs> film is something quite different, although you could say, having seen all the footage, that it's about animals, because it's about that incident, um, which our listeners will probably remember in uh, January of 2019, when um, a bunch of boys in red hats um, con appeared to be confronting um, a Native American elder on the set on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial at the uh, 2019 March for Life. The hats, of course, were the were the well-known hats of Trump supporters, Make America Great Again hats uh, of Trump supporters, only in this case it was a bunch of schoolboys who went to um, the elite Covington, Covington Catholic School in Kentucky. It just so happens that the director went there too, although much earlier than these boys, but prominent among them was a, a teenager by the name of Nick Sandman, which is 
definitely um, an appropriate name from for him. My mother used to say that if I didn't go to sleep immediately, the Sandman would come and get me. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, and he uh, had a what appeared to be a, a smoky confrontation with a Native American elder by the name of Nathan Phillips, who had walked towards the boys who appeared to be giving their school cheer. Now, um, the video of this particular incident, of course, immediately went viral, and so did the commentary <laughs> um, by social media and by the media, and nobody was short of an opinion or an immediate judgment on the situation. And then it took all sorts of twists and turns, uh, and uh, Schroeder's aim in this documentary is to try and fill in the picture and show how ambiguous it really was. And the picture that he comes up with um, is that there was some mutual intimidation going on between three groups. One was the boys who were not just singing their school cheer. <laughs> and uh, the other group was a group called the Black Hebrew Israelites, which despite their name are a well-known uh, anti-Semitic group um, who came and, and uh, challenged uh, the boys. And uh, Nathan Phillips himself, who in fact told some lies uh, in his account of the events, and so uh, what he, Schroeder tries to do here is to try and both fill in and unravel the picture, which turns out to be much more complicated, that's his point, um, than just about any of the commentators on the left or the right were uh, opinionating about. And... Um, Subsequently, Nick Sandman, uh, this boy, um, sued NBC and called himself a, a victim uh, of the situation because his reputation had suffered, uh, which it seems to have deserved it. Um, but Schroeder is much more interested in the tribalism that emerged on every side in interpreting this sequence uh, of events and which he, I think, correctly interprets um, as exacerbating the social divisions that we have in this country and, and so weakening democracy. And he makes a pretty um, convincing case. He also fills in uh, the role of this particular school in shaping uh, the racist attitudes of these boys. Um, he himself was actually punched by a teacher um, which uh, such was the veneration for authority in, in this school was, was never actually followed up legally as it, might, as it might have been. But he depicts it as a place of toxic white privilege. And there are some actually horrifying um, videos that he digs up. One of them is of the school um, fairly recently performing in uh, the boys, which are, who are all white, uh, performing in blackface. Worse than that, though, was, um, I forget whether it was a football match or a, um, uh, sorry, a soccer match um, or a, a baseball, but... Um, the supporters of the team from Covington, the boys who went to the school, were chanting out, that's all right, that's okay, you will work for us someday. Ugh. And nobody chided them for anything. 
advertised as a documentary that will piss off both sides. The Boys in Red Hats streams starting this Friday at Limely Virtual Cinema and then at screenings subsequently. Now for something completely different, can you recommend a documentary that is not about smirking supporters of Donald Trump? I can. Uh, and the movie uh, is Roadrunner, although I will say that its subject, Anthony Boudin, the late, uh, tragically late, um, uh, early death of Anthony Boudin, um, is less a roadrunner uh, than he is a white rabbit disappearing down lots of different holes. <laughs> um, I think it's a pretty marvelous documentary. It's directed by Morgan Neville, a very good uh, and imaginative, but also very tactful director um, who also made it, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about Mr. Rogers, the marvelous documentary uh, about backup singers 20 feet from stardom, and another film called The Best of Enemies, which was um, about hilarious venomous um, exchanges between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, also a very good film. Uh, here, he is um, dealing with the tangled life and, and career and eventual suicide of Anthony Boudin, who um, I'm sure everybody knows, went from being a heroin and cocaine addict to um, a dishwasher in uh, Provincetown, I think, to uh, a cook in a restaurant, to a chef with his own very famous restaurant of Les Halles um, in uh, Manhattan. And uh, he's an enormously interesting uh, and tragic subject, um, as probably most people also know. Uh, he committed suicide in, in 2016. Um, when you watch the documentary and, and see how he went from one to the other, at least I was very much put in mind of George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris in Lon and London, uh, which among other things showed how the uh, kitchen workers in, uh, I think it was the Savoy and other posh hotels in London spat in the soup of the, <laughs> of the, of the hotel guests. Um, Boudin never did anything like that, um, but he does recognize uh, the world of cuisine, whether it's haute cuisine or street food in very troubled countries of the world, which I'll talk more about, um, as, uh, as scenes of blood and guts and cruelty. And uh, as he became um, from a chef into a writer, was not shy about uh, documenting that. He was extremely bright, extremely articulate, very funny, uh, and there's so much footage of him uh, that uh, Neville includes, apparently. There was a whole lot more as well. He looked like um, Leonard Cohen on speed, <laughs> I guess is the best way I can describe it. Really, uh, uh, a shockingly handsome guy, long and rangy, um, and very elegant in his uh, trademark jeans and, and shirt. Um, the elephant in the room of this movie um, is, of course, mental illness and in particular manic depression, which anybody who has spent time with people who have that condition will recognize that without a doubt he, he suffered from both poles of, um, of this horrible 
uh, disease. And I'm very glad that Neville actually doesn't use the words once uh, or, or frame the movie in that way, but he doesn't ignore it either. Um, he's presenting a man um, whose private life and public life were completely inseparable. And in, in both of them, he was marvelously talented. And uh, as one of his creative partners says, who's interviewed in the documentary, a real pain in the ass who could also sometimes be horrible um, in the sense that he pushed his employees well beyond their limits, as he did himself, fired his cinematographer once he uh, um, established his famous TV series in which he, he travels the, the richest and poorest countries of the world um, with food as an increasingly minor aspect of, of the TV series and politics major. Um, he is a charming companion around these places, but he moves a mile a minute. I mean, he's like a, he was like an energizer bunny. He's immense, as he put it himself, one of his few virtues was uh, an intense curiosity about millions of different things, which I think is one of the reasons that made his television series so vital uh, and his, his interviews. Um, in, it, right at the beginning of the film, he's being interviewed and he's, he says quite early on uh, that he thinks a lot about death. He said, and he really doesn't care um, how he will be remembered. He said, you can throw me into a wood chipper or spray me into Harrods for all he cares. <laughs> um, and that's very funny for a while until it isn't anymore because uh, when his first marriage to the very in highly intelligent uh, Octavia Busia, with whom he had a little girl, he was absolutely devoted to when that started to fall apart because he mainly because he couldn't sit still for five minutes um he fell into a very deep depression and began to speak of ending his life and i think that the movie is fairly unequivocal about the fact that um his ensuing romance with asia Argento, the actress and, and director, and also, I believe, the daughter of Dario Argento, a famous horror movie maker, um, was as over the top as he was. And he became, he, he, he was so in love with her that he pretty much merged into her, became very active in the Me Too movement, of, of which she was one of the more... I guess, extreme exponents, you could say. Um, she made a very um, incendiary, uh, probably correct speech in which she said she claimed to have been raped by Harvey um, Weinstein and then went on to say that many members of the audience she was speaking to need to be held accountable also. But meanwhile, the relationship was uh, very much going south. I mean, it's I think it's hard for two people with uh, so the same temperament of any kind to be in a marriage, uh, but certainly two people as, as inclined to extremity as these um, were too. Um, and uh, the rest, of course, is history, is that he in fact did kill himself and 
There's a lot of um, very moving footage of his partners, his friends, people he was terrible to also, um, who say how much they miss him because um, for all the difficulties of, of his personality, he was a wonderful friend um, who only meant well. And I think the sad theme of his life, as it's shown in the, in the documentary, is that he wanted, what he wanted more than anything else was an ordinary, normal life. He actually says that in the movie. When his daughter was born, um, he went from being extremely ambivalent about having children, to put it mildly, to absolutely devoted to her and to his life with her. But he wasn't suited to being um, an involved father because he was always traveling. And uh, if he wasn't traveling, he was always off somewhere else, um, which is why I mentioned the white rabbit, is that he was always disappearing down these holes of interest. I think it's a marvelous, um, uh, very compassionate and humane documentary that also shows all his sides without pinning them down um, also to his illness. Yeah, we saw a lot of him. Of course, he had several famous TV shows, which, as you correctly described, moved for increasingly further from food in, into politics. I think for me, the most interesting one was where he goes to Vietnam with Obama and they eat street food in Hanoi. And he gets Obama to talk about remembering when he was a kid in Indonesia, a chapter of Obama's life that we know hardly anything about remembering his mother taking him for street food when he was like, you know, eight years old. It's a, a, a revealing and, and wonderful uh, uh, moment. It's no surprise that he was, uh, that when he and uh, our very own Jonathan Gold um, met, that they got along famously because in some ways their tastes were very, very similar. But it really, uh, they were interested in both uh, oat cuisine and in street food, and that was not, those were not the labels that interested them. Yeah. It was the making and the context and the, you know, the fact that you could find fantastic food in a little tiny mini mall, which I think intrigued Bourdain when he came to Los Angeles as well. Roadrunner, the documentary about Anthony Bourdain, opens Friday at the Landmark on Pico in West L.A. in Century City and lots of other theaters. It will be streaming online at HBO Max and CNN eventually, but not until the theatrical first run is over. We have time for one more briefly. This is, a, a, in my opinion, loads of fun TV series called Physical, which has been, uh, is around about episode six um, on Apple TV, or maybe it's five. Um, which I kind of stumbled onto because I was reading some negative reviews of the show, uh, and you'll see why. It's set in 1980s San Diego um, in that particular um, strange interregnum when the 60s counterculture had gone sour. Um, and for many people, at least on the West Coast, what replaced it was uh, wellness movements and... Um, all kinds of Meshuggahna um, diets and exercise shows and so on. And, and the star of this show, whose name is Sheila Rubin, is marvelously played by the actress Rose Byrne, um, uh, who 
I was always thought of her as Irish, but in fact, she's Australian, um, but uh, really showed us what she could do um, in the film Bridesmaids, where she plays this horrible sort of sorority type. <laughs> um, she's completely unafraid of, um, of playing uh, dubious characters. And here she is um, with her husband, uh, who's played by Rory Scovell, the stand-up uh, comedian. And uh, they need money. They have a little girl, um, but nothing's working for them. He is still very much a, a Berkeley, the Berkeley radical that he was a star of. And he's one of these figures that, if you went through the 60s, will be very familiar, which is that they were absolute heroes um, as student activists and then had absolutely no idea uh, how to deal with life thereafter. <laughs> um, I certainly knew many um, such in, in England, but he wants to run for office um, on a platform of save our waves so that surfers can continue to surf. And he's <laughs> good also. He has no idea how to do anything, and he, he hires another stoned ex-hippie who's very marvelously played by Jeffrey Arendt as his manager, which, of course, you know, is no use at all. Sheila, meanwhile, um, is bulimic um, and hates herself, <laughs> but she's introduced to diet and exercise um, in much the way that a certain movie star um, uh, played, played by Jane Fonda in real life uh, it was. And it turns out that she's actually a pretty nifty businesswoman too. And she comes up with the idea of putting exercise classes on tape so that people could actually do them at home. She must have anticipated uh, COVID. Um, and so the story, each episode is all about them trying to get this business off the ground and of her trying to stop her husband um, shoot himself in the foot. But it is much more, it's not really a gag line comedy, although it is very funny and it's extremely crisply written. Um, it, it was created by Annie Wiseman and the behind the camera crew is almost all female which surprised me somewhat because it is, you know, it really goes for the jugular um, in ways that I think that I find actually rather bracing because those things are usually done um, by men. And the most interesting thing about it is that these are a bunch of rather sour characters at a very sour time uh, in baby boomer history when they were really kind of, uh, wounded by the end of the counterculture um, and uh, was struggling uh, to find a way uh, forward with, with some new ideology behind them. Uh, and in fact, the counterculture had gone sour as at, at this time. It is a social satire. It's been much more successful in Europe, especially in Germany, than in America, where we like to think positive. Uh, and people, have, I think on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got like a 67%. I liked it a great deal um, because it's completely fearless uh, in, uh, in its approach and because it's so funny also. Physical, the fearless dark comedy about an exercise guru. Six episodes now on Apple TV. Ella Taylor is our TV and film critic. Thank you, Ella. You're very welcome, John. 
That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rai Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.